Good morning. The first scripture, scripture reading is from the book of Acts. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. Acts 1, 3, 2, 7. The second scripture is, from, is comprised of selections from the book of Psalm. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Psalm 27, 14. Psalm 37, 7. Psalm 135 to 6. The last scripture is from Lamentations and Isaiah. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. Lamentations 3.25, Isaiah 64.4. Well, good morning. How is everybody? Good. Me too. Thanks. It's, um, it's great to see everybody. I have to say, so we, we've just, uh, last week, we wrapped up a five-week sermon series on how to change, and man, you guys look different. Like, you guys are looking really good. It's either the change series or the body lotion, or some combination, combination of the two. Um, if you haven't been around the last five weeks, um, actually, I think it's kind of entertaining just to leave that body lotion thing hanging out there confusing. But what you ought to do is you ought to go back and listen to the last five weeks of, of sermons. Uh, Pastor Ryan has really sort of upped the ante every week in terms of personal vulnerability, and it's been a, it's been a great series. Um, this morning, for, for just one week, we're going to pivot away from personal change to the topic of circumstantial change. And, and just like we all have things about ourselves that we'd like to change, my guess is we also all have things about our circumstances that we'd like to change. And, and circumstantial change is hard because a lot of times, most of the time, in fact, changing your circumstances means trying to change something that's completely out of your control. And when there's nothing you can do other than wait, you just have to wait. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the topic of waiting. And my guess is if we went around the room, we could all name at least one thing that we're waiting for. If nothing else, we're probably all waiting for the end of winter. I was not ready for more snow last night, but, but we probably all have more significant things we're waiting for. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's a career thing you're waiting for. Maybe you're waiting for a big career breakout, or maybe you're waiting for the right moment to make a career transition. Or maybe it's something relational that you're waiting for. Maybe, maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're lonely and you're waiting for a spouse or you're waiting for companionship. Or, or maybe you're waiting for your spouse to change. Or maybe you're waiting for relief in some kind of broken relationship. Or, or maybe uh, you and your spouse are waiting for a child. Or maybe it's something health-related. Maybe you're waiting for a doctor's report. 
or maybe there's a health issue and you're waiting for healing. Uh, my guess is, or maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something else that you're waiting for, but my guess is if we went around the room, we could all say at least one big thing that we're waiting for. And what we see in Scripture, and it's all throughout Scripture, what you see in the Bible is that waiting is a very big part of our story as the people of God. That passage from Acts that was just read uh, is, is an occurrence that happens just after Jesus' resurrection. And, and it's the resurrected Jesus, and he's with his disciples, and they're, they're like on the top of the world. All of a sudden, they have this incredible momentum, this incredible energy behind Jesus' movement. He's just come back from the dead. And, and they're with Jesus, and they're like, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next, Lord? And he says, we're going to wait. And they're like, no, 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 no. What are we going to do next? I mean, isn't it time? Aren't we going to reclaim the kingdom of Israel? And he says, no, we're going to wait. It's not for you to know the days and times that have been set by the Father. We're going to wait. And this waiting thing is a huge part of our story. It's all throughout Scripture, and it starts in the very beginning. In Genesis, God breathes life into Adam. God breathes life into Adam, and the first thing God does with Adam is he gives him work to do. He says, take care of the garden and name the animals. And that means that Adam had to wait for companionship. He didn't get Eve right away. Abraham had to wait 25 years for his promised son. Joseph had to wait 13 years in prison until he was in the palace. The people of Israel had to wait 40 years in the desert until they could enter the promised land. David had to wait 15 years after he was anointed as king until he actually took the throne. The people of Israel waited generation after generation after generation for the Messiah. And then Jesus waited 30 years in obscurity for three years of ministry. And then Jesus waited three days in the grave for his resurrection. And after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven, and now all of us are waiting for his promised return. Waiting is such a big part of our story as the people of God. And this morning, we're going to look at the topic of waiting, and we're going to try to answer two big questions about waiting. First, we're going to try to answer why. Why does God like waiting so much? Why is waiting such a big part of our story? Second, we're going to try to answer how. How should we wait? How should we wait? What should this look like in our lives? First, why, and then how. So first, first why? Why do we have to wait? Why does God like waiting so much? And what's clear throughout Scripture is that God does like it, and he's a lot more comfortable. He's a lot more comfortable with waiting than we are. I found this study this week. It's a study done by Timex, the watch company. And this study found, see, we view waiting as a waste of time. We all view waiting as a waste of time. This study found that on average, the average American will spend six months, six months of your life standing in line waiting for something. Six months. The same study found that the average American will spend 43 days, that's 43 24-hour periods of your life waiting on hold on the telephone for somebody to answer. I mean, I hope that's not true. Those two statistics just make me so mad just hearing about it. I can't imagine six months of your life. Imagine what you could do with six months of your life or 43 days on hold. But see, God doesn't view waiting as a waste of time. We view this as what a waste of time, 43 days wasted. God doesn't view waiting as a waste of time. God views waiting as an opportunity. And if nothing else, God views waiting as an opportunity to show us that he wants to be with us even in the mundane, boring moments of our life. 
my, um, my wife and I recently celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary. It was, uh, wow. <laughs> wow, thank you. Um, it was January 18th, which is actually exactly a month ago today, and we celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary by going to a special parent-teacher conference for our son, Oliver, who um, uh, apparently he's falling behind a little bit in his reading levels, and so the teacher wanted to get together and talk to us about it, and apparently this was the only night that worked. So we have this. This is how we're celebrating our 15-year wedding anniversary. We're in this parent-teacher conference, and I'm kind of annoyed about this, and I'm, I'm sitting there in this parent-teacher conference, and I'm thinking, man, this isn't why I married Sarah. <laughs> and then I started to realize something. I started to realize something. I started to sort of think back to our wedding 15 years ago that day exactly. And what occurred to me is that actually this is exactly the reason why I wanted to marry Sarah. We're talking about our five-year-old son in his school, in his kindergarten class, and I'm sitting there next to Sarah, and what I realized is the reason I wanted to marry Sarah 15 years ago was so that I could journey through life with her, together, including the boring moments, the mundane moments, the annoying moments of life. And it's sort of the same way with God. God likes waiting, I think. One of the reasons why he must like waiting so much is he can use it to show us that he just likes being with us even during the six months of your life that you'll spend standing in line for something. See, God likes to use it to show us that he, he wants to be with us, but it's more than that. It's more than that. God also views waiting as a setup. See, we view waiting as a setback. God views waiting as a setup, a setup for something even bigger than what we're waiting for to take place. And one way he does this, one way he does this is by using waiting to help us realize the place we occupy in God's world. See, when we're waiting for something, it sort of forces us to realize that God is God and we're not. It, it's a forced reminder of who's in charge here. See, we're his beloved creatures, we're the crown of his creation, but we're still just creatures. We exist for his purposes, not the other way around. Paul says in Romans, from him, to him, and through him are all things. And waiting forces us into this deep sense of humility because it reminds us that we live in God's world and he controls the timing. And that's a hard thing to accept. It's a hard thing to accept. The world is not a friendly place for those who wait. You and I will never receive applause. We'll never receive accolades for our patience. You and I will never receive a bonus at work for being a good waiter. Unless, of course, you work at a restaurant. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, it's precisely because waiting is so humbling that our culture hates it. It's because waiting is so humbling that our culture hates it. And all throughout our culture, all throughout our culture, not waiting is a sign of success and a sign of privilege. All throughout our culture, our culture loves these ways where we can pay more to speed up the process. Maybe it's a, it's a fast pass line at an amusement park, or your airline status that lets you board sooner, or maybe slipping the maitre d' some cash so you can get seated earlier. I don't know if that works, by the way. I've seen that in movies. I don't know if anybody ever does that, but it seems like it works in movies. In all sorts of ways, our society lets us pay more to speed up the line. And I think that must be one reason why God likes waiting. Because when it comes to the big stuff, when it comes to the important stuff in your life, there's just no way, there's just simply no way you can pay more to speed up the process. 
So waiting is a forced reminder of the place that we occupy in God's world. And I think that's one reason why he likes it. Another reason why God, I think, must like waiting so much is that waiting presupposes that there's a future worth waiting for. It presupposes that, th that there's a future worth waiting for. See, there's a reason. There's a reason that our culture is so frenetically focused on grabbing everything now. And the reason is that our culture has basically given up on the fact that there's any kind of future worth waiting for. Our culture doesn't think there's any kind of future that's anything other than an extension of the present. And if there's no eternity, and if there's no eternal hope, then you ought to grab whatever you can right now. See, what you believe about the future will profoundly impact how you can wait through tough times. And if you're in a dead-end career and you're waiting for a breakthrough, or if you're uh, lonely and you're waiting for a spouse, or if you're in a difficult marriage and you're waiting for relief, or if you're dealing with a health issue and you're waiting for healing, you can either, you can either act as though there's no tomorrow, you can either act as though there's only the here and now, in which case you'll do whatever you can to get the highest and quickest level of satisfaction. Because there's no tomorrow worth waiting for. Or, or you can trust God and wait patiently for his tomorrow that shines with God's promises. Waiting is, a, is good. God likes waiting because it presupposes that there's a, a future worth waiting for. And finally... The final reason I want to highlight in terms of why, in terms of why God must like waiting, is that when we wait, we give God room to work. When we wait, we give God space to work. See, we like to rush toward action, but man, when we do stuff, we have a, we have a big tendency to screw things up. But when we're forced to wait, it gives God room to work. Uh, one of the verses that was read this morning is this amazing verse from Isaiah in Isaiah 64, it's quickly becoming one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And it says that God acts for those who wait for him. God acts for those who wait for him. God works for those who wait. Do you want, do you want the God of the universe working on your behalf? Do you want God going to work for you? Well, Isaiah 64 tells you how to get it. You wait. You wait for God. See, our society has this mantra, don't just stand there, do something. God flips it upside down, and he says, don't just do something, stand there, trust me, let me do the work for you. And so if you want God, if you want the God of the universe to be working on your behalf, what Isaiah 64 tells us is that we have to wait. We have to wait, and the question then ought to be, okay, well, I want that, so how do I wait? What does this look like in my life? And we're going to spend the rest of our time on that this morning. How do we wait? What does this look like? And, and paradoxically, what we see in Scripture is that waiting is not a passive activity. Waiting actually is a vigilant, confident, expectant activity, which means counterintuitively that waiting is actually work, and it's hard work at that. So let me give you a few things. Let me give you a few things. I'm going to give you four things, hopefully four things that will be helpful in terms of how you should think about what waiting looks like in your life. First one is practical obedience. How do you wait? It's just practical obedience. See, one of the things you and I instinctively do when we're waiting for something, one of the things you and I uh, do when we're, we're, we're looking to the future for something is we sort of check out of the present. We get so focused on what we're waiting for in the future that we sort of retreat from things that God has given us in the present that are good and right for us to do. 
Maybe you retreat from your own health. Maybe you, you don't sleep well or you don't take care of yourself or you don't eat well. Or maybe you retreat from your work. Maybe you retreat from your daily responsibilities. Or you, maybe you retreat from your family or from uh, other relationships. Or maybe you retreat from God, from prayer and scripture. One of the keys to waiting successfully is to simply not do that. Don't let what you're waiting for in the future distract you from the work that God has given you in the present that's good and right for you to do. You have to stay vigilant, stay alert, stay alert. I've often thought that one of the hardest jobs, one of the most mentally taxing jobs, at least for me, would be something like a security guard. Something where your entire job is to stay alert, to stay vigilant, to wait. Your whole job is to wait, and it's waiting for something that's really unlikely to happen. Your job is 99.9% boring, but you have to stay vigilant because the moment you check out, you might miss something. And I think that's why the Bible uh, loves this imagery of a watchman. And it's all over the Psalms. The Bible loves this imagery of a watchman. Uh, one of the verses that was read this morning is Psalm 130, where it says, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. You know, in biblical times, uh, watchmen would vigilantly guard the city all night. They're waiting for the sun to come up while they're guarding the city, making sure that nobody's trying to attack the city in the middle of the night. And that's a great image of what it ought to look like for you as you're waiting in your life. You're staying vigilant. You're staying present. You're staying focused on the work you have to do. You don't check out. You don't retreat. It's practical obedience. That's the first thing. Second thing, in terms of what waiting ought to look like in your life, you ought to view waiting in your life as preparation. View it as training. View it as training maybe for something far bigger than what you're actually waiting for. See, when you, when you exercise, you deliberately put your body through, through physical pain in order to make it stronger. And in the same way, your, your faith can't grow unless it's tested. Your commitment to God can't grow unless it's threatened. And, and waiting, waiting is one way God likes to use to train us, to prepare us. I think I've learned more about spiritual waiting from flight delays than probably anything else in my life. And uh, I do a decent amount of, of travel for work, which means I have a decent amount of, of flight delays in my life. And I'm a relatively patient person with most things, but for some reason I just do, I do not handle uh, travel delays well. And sometimes the most frustrating ones are when you take off on time and the flight is smooth and you're, you're, you're approaching the destination, but then there's some weather issue or something on the ground and the pilot comes on and he says, we're going into a holding pattern. We're going to circle. And you can look out your window and you can see the destination. It's right there, but you can't land. Or even worse, even worse is when you do land and there's something in the gate. There's another plane blocking the gate and you have to wait on the runway and you can see exactly where you want to be. You could walk there. You could easily walk there, but you can't get there. And sometimes it's the case in your walk with God that you can see what you want. It's right there. God, it's right there. Can't I just get it? Get me out of this plane so I can get it. And God says, no, you have to wait. And when he's doing that, he's not doing it to punish you. It's a preparation. See, God has an instrument panel. God has access to information that you and I just don't have. He knows when it's safe to land and you and I don't. He knows when the gate is clear and you and I just don't know it. God's not punishing you by waiting. He's preparing you. One way to think about it is that God is preparing you in your waiting. He's preparing you to do what he's already prepared for you to do when the waiting's over. You look at the life of Abraham and you see this. Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise as a son. And it was during that 25-year period of waiting that Abraham got to know God. Abraham got 
to, to have this intimate friendship, this intimate relationship with God. And it was that relationship, that friendship with God that allowed Abraham to pass the ultimate test of his faith that he, that he had to pass later in his life. When God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac, this son that he'd waited for for 25 years, God asked him to sacrifice it. And by that point in Abraham's life, because he had spent 25 years getting to know God on such an intimate level, by that point in Abraham's life, his faith wasn't in the promise. His faith was in the promiser. By that point in his life, he, was, he wasn't holding on to the outcome. He was holding on to the God who holds the outcome in his hand. And it was only because of his 25 years of waiting that Abraham was prepared for that ultimate test of faith that came later in his life. That's the second thing. View waiting in your life, view waiting as preparation, as a period of training for something bigger that's yet to come. Thirdly, use waiting in your life. Use waiting in your life as a time to seek God's guidance. Use waiting as a time to seek God's guidance. See, our temptation when we're waiting is to take matters into our own hands, is to figure out some way to, to speed up the process, to figure out some way to, to help God along. This is what, you know, Abraham and Sarah tried this. Ten years into their 25 years of waiting, they thought they had a brilliant plan. Well, Abraham, why don't you just sleep with our servant girl, Hagar? We can speed up the promise this way. And Abraham, of course, he agrees it's a great idea. And so they do it. Instead of, taking, instead of consulting God, they take matters into their own hands. And in Isaiah, we read about the people of God, and, and, and they're under attack, they're under threat from enemies, and they're tempted to do the same thing. They're tempted to seek human help rather than wait on God for help. And in Isaiah 31, God says to them, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe to those who trust in chariots, but do not consult the Lord. See, waiting first and foremost means that we ought to look to the Lord for guidance. We ought to consult the Lord. We ought to look to him and his will before we pursue any kind of human aid. And, you know, by the way, it may be the case that God does want you to do something. I mean, it may be the case that you think you're waiting on God. In reality, God may be waiting on you to do something. But you won't know, you won't know that until you seek his guidance. All throughout David's life, particularly during David's life when David is in this period of waiting, David asks God all of these specific questions. God, should I go back to Judah? God says yes. David says, which town? God says Hebron. God, should I pursue the Philistines? God says yes. Will I overtake them? God says yes, you will overtake them. All throughout David's period of waiting, David is seeking God's guidance. He's asking God these specific questions, and God gives him specific answers. And a lot of times it's the case with David that God actually wants him to do something, that God wants him to take action. And it may be the case with you when you're waiting. God may want you to take some action, but you won't know what exactly you're supposed to do until you seek his guidance. By the way, it may also be the case that God doesn't want you to do anything. This is the case with Moses. Moses gets to the Red Sea. He gets to the edge of the Red Sea, and he has no idea what he's supposed to do, and God says, don't do anything. Be still. I've got this one. Don't do anything. So it may be the case that God wants you to keep waiting. It may be the case that God wants you to do something, but you won't know what you're supposed to do until you seek God's guidance. And the only way to get God's guidance is to pray, to pray, to talk to God, and to read Scripture. You've got to tell God your story, that's prayer, and you've got to read his story, you've got to read his word, that's scripture. And as you do that, here's what will happen. As you spend time during your waiting in prayer and in scripture, seeking God's guidance, you will get to know God like Abraham did. And you will slowly mature into a person of wisdom. You will slowly mature into a, into a person who, in some cases, you're just able to discern and make decisions. 
Make decisions. See, the ability in life to make decisions, it's a sign of maturity. You know, our five-year-old son, Oliver, our common question in our house is, is, Daddy, can I play after dinner? Okay, uh, usually the answer is, okay, you'll probably have about 15 minutes to play after dinner before bedtime. He's five years old, that's an appropriate question, can I play after dinner? Imagine if 15 years from now, when he's 20 years old, imagine if in, in, he's in college, and imagine if he calls me one night and he says, hey dad, uh, can I play after dinner? Like some of my friends are going out after dinner to play frisbee, and I was just wondering, can I go with him? And I'll think, man, I should have paid more attention in that parent-teacher conference. But man, you got to make that decision for yourself, Oliver. You're mature enough to make that decision for yourself. And as you spend time with God, as you seek God's guidance, you will slowly mature in your wisdom. And you'll be able to just make decisions. And sometimes it's the case you think you're waiting on God. God may just want you to make a decision. Should I quit my job? Should I move to a new city? Should I buy this house? God might just want you to make a decision. But you won't know that won't know that until you seek his guidance, until you get to know him, and you'll grow in wisdom and maturity. That's the third thing. When you're waiting, you seek God's guidance. Fourthly, we'll close with this one. This is the best one. When you're waiting, you got to wait with confident expectation. Wait with confident expectation. And you know, that does not come naturally for us. At least it doesn't come naturally for me. When I'm waiting, my inclination is not to be confidently expectant. Uh, my inclination is to worry, is to stress out, it's to wonder, it's to whine and complain. But God says, I want you to wait on me with confident expectation. And this has really struck me in my own life recently. I've been, um, believe it or not, I've been reading through First and Second Chronicles this year. I, I don't think I've ever just read through First and Second Chronicles, the whole thing, start to finish, and so for some reason, I decided to do it this year, and it's really boring. Uh, it's really, it's basically First and Second Chronicles. It's a drier retelling of most of the same stories that are in First and Second Kings. But every once in a while, you get these little nuggets, these little things that are, are amazing. And, and the other day, I was in Second Chronicles uh, 31 and 32, which tells the story of King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah, is, he's an amazing guy. He basically single-handedly leads a spiritual revival in Jerusalem and all throughout Judah. And in, uh, but he's got some enemies. And, and in particular, the king of Assyria is his, is his big arch nemesis. And the king of Assyria has a giant army. And in 2 Chronicles 32, the king of Assyria and his giant army has attacked every other town in Judah. They've attacked and conquered every other town in Judah. And they're coming for Jerusalem. And Hezekiah knows that they're coming for Jerusalem next, and they know that this is not going to be good. So they're waiting. King Hezekiah is waiting in Jerusalem for this giant army to come and attack and conquer Jerusalem. And while they're waiting, while they're waiting, King Hezekiah gathers his military leaders. He gathers his generals around for kind of a, uh, you know, like a locker room style pep talk. And this is what he says as he gathers his military leaders around. I think we can put this on the screen. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And what's so intriguing to me about what he's saying there is that nobody told him to say that. Nobody told him to say that. God didn't even tell him to say that. He just says it. He just goes out on a limb. 
He, may, he has this sort of irrational confidence in what God is able to do. And it doesn't really make any sense. They're vastly outnumbered. And if God really was on their side, if God really was on their side, then why would God have allowed the Assyrians to attack and conquer every other city in Judah? So what he's saying, there's no, there's no logic to it. The logic doesn't hold up. He goes way out on a limb in terms of his, this irrational, confident expectation of what God is able to do. And yet what does God do? God honors it. God proves Hezekiah right, and it doesn't make any sense. The, the scripture says that God sends an angel into the Assyrian camp, and the angel annihilates all of the commanders and officers of the Assyrian army, and they're forced to go home in disgrace. They don't even have to fight the battle. See, God responds to confident faith in him. If you're waiting for something, if you're waiting for something, you ought to expect God to do something big and miraculous as a result of that waiting. And you know what? I have a feeling that God is going to like proving you right. You ought to expect God to do something big and miraculous. And then you ought to act as if it's going to come true. Another way to say this is that waiting is what you make of it. Waiting is completely what you make of it. Jesus has this famous line. It's Mark eleven twenty four. He says, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. It's an amazing line, and you really have to unpack it to get at what he's saying, because there's a change in tense in the middle of the sentence. He says, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Believe that you have received it. That's past tense. He's saying, you have to believe that you've already received it, and then it will be yours. That's future tense. You have to believe that you already have it, and then you will receive it. It's an amazing sentence. What Jesus is saying is, if you believe that I'm going to give it to you, then I will give it to you. That's faith. That's faith. See, thanking God for an answer to prayer after he's answered the prayer, that's gratitude, and that's important. But thanking God for a prayer before he's answered the prayer, that's faith, and that's even better. And that's the kind of attitude we're supposed to have when we're waiting. If you're waiting for something, you ought to expect God to do something really big and powerful as a result of that waiting. And then you ought to just act like it's going to happen. Just expect it to happen and start acting like it's going to be that way. I, um, I don't know if you've ever been pregnant. Uh, I haven't, but my wife has been pregnant three times. This is very dangerous territory, by the way. I know, I know, I, I know that. Um, but all I want to say is that you know, another word for being pregnant is expecting. And one of the things pregnant women do when they're expecting is, you know, they haven't seen the baby. Maybe you've seen it on a screen, but you haven't seen the baby. But you just, you start to act like you know it's coming. You buy stuff. You buy diapers. You buy clothes. You buy supplies for the baby's room. You act like you know it's coming. And my question for you is, in your waiting, whatever you're waiting for right now, what would it look like for you to just start acting like you know it's coming? Whatever you're waiting for. Just start acting like you know it's coming. Let's try to get really practical here. Maybe you're, maybe you're out of work and you're waiting for a job. What would it look like for you to just start acting like God's going to give you a big job? I don't know. I mean, you have to answer that for yourself. It might mean, for one thing, it might mean not sitting around the house in your sweatpants. It might mean setting the alarm, getting up early, and putting on some work clothes. It might mean going to some seminars or somehow training yourself or, or enhancing your skill set so that when you get that big job, you'll be ready for it. You ought to start acting like it's going to happen. You ought to have this confident expectation in your waiting, and then just start acting like it's going to happen. I think God loves proving us right. 
I think he loves proving us right. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, boy, I guess that sounds good, but it's kind of risky, right? And yeah, it is kind of risky because you don't know for sure how it's going to turn out. You don't. But wouldn't you rather trust? Wouldn't you rather trust the God who is able to do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine than not? Wouldn't you rather trust him than not trust him? In, uh, in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are hauled before King Nebuchadnezzar because they refused to worship a golden image of the Babylonian king that he set up. And I love what they say when they're hauled before King Nebuchadnezzar. They say, we do not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You love what they're saying. What they're saying is God is able to deliver us. He's able to do it, and frankly, we expect that he will. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we're better off serving our God who's real than your God who's fake. That's what they're saying. They don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. They have this confident expectation that God will deliver them. And they get out on a limb and they say, we think he will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're better off trusting our God who's real. And you know how the story turns out. God does keep them safe, but he doesn't rescue them out of the furnace. They have to wait all night long in the middle of a fiery furnace, a furnace that's made seven times hotter than normal. They wait all night long, and in the middle of the night, when the furnace is seven times hotter than normal, Scripture tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, and he doesn't just see three men, he sees a fourth man with him. See, God didn't rescue them out of the furnace. He made them wait all night long in the furnace, but... God got in there with them, and they waited together. And that's the promise you and I have. That's why we can wait with confidence. Because God will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. So you ought to expect him to do something big. You ought to expect him to do something big. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us to wait pray that you would teach us to wait on you so that we can create space for you to work. I pray, Lord, for all the people in this room who are waiting for something right now. I pray that you would bring them relief. I pray that you would bring them guidance. And Father, most of all, I pray that we would become a people who can wait with confidence, a people who can have this confident expectation that not only do you control the outcome, but that you're going to be with us regardless of the outcome. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the faith as we wait to just act like it's going to happen. Show us what that looks like in our lives. Show us what it looks like to just act like it's going to happen. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.